Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanthi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, 20 years ago, in the summer of 2002, major label Jive Records was setting up the debut album from a very high-priority new solo artist who had just emerged from a blockbuster boy band. And they needed to give this young man, Justin Timberlake, his own bespoke adult sound. For the first single, they went with a track that had the vibe of a young Michael Jackson. But the song, Like I Love You, was much quirkier than that, as if a lush 80s Jackson song had been deconstructed and stripped for parts. This Skeletal Songs masterminds were from Virginia Beach, Virginia, a pair who called themselves the Neptunes. One of the producers, Pharrell Williams, even appeared in Timberlake's video, alongside a pair of rappers, the Clips, who also hailed from Virginia Beach. I'm in front of you, grab a friend, see, I can have fun with two, or me and you put on a stage show, and the mall kids ask how the chain glow, point to her, they say, wow, it's the same glow. For Timberlake's second single, Jive went with a song produced by a different Virginia Beach producer and songwriter, and this single, too, sounded spacey, avant-garde, and catchy as hell. Cry Me a River was the handiwork of the man-born Timothy Mosley, known professionally as Timbaland. The recording was a cathedral of weird. It lurched, gurgled, pinged, and whirred, punctuated by synthesized orchestral bursts and a virtual choir. Nothing in Justin Timberlake's boy band past sounded like either Like I Love You or Cry Me a River. Pharrell Williams and Timbaland had fully rebooted the young pop star's career. Just why did a major label entrust their new solo superstar to these two cutting-edge Virginia Beach producers? Because by 2002, Pharrell and Tim had established themselves as not only the locus of musical coolness, but also the leading hitmakers of millennial pop. They had been on a tear for the better part of a decade, refashioning R&B, hip-hop, 
even glossy teen pop in their image. But there was arguably no greater ambassador for the Virginia Beach sound than a woman who also grew up in the greater Hampton Roads area, was both an artist and a producer herself, and was Timbaland's professional partner, muse, and inspiration, path-breaking rapper Missy Elliott. I'm driving to the beach, top down, loud sound, see my peace. Give them pounds now, look who it be. It be me, 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 and Timothy. Together, Missy and Timbaland redefined the sounds considered accessible not just in hip-hop but in top 40 pop, smuggling in some of the most delightfully weird sounds ever to make the top 10. Eventually, Pharrell Williams and Tim Mosley followed Missy's lead to become frontline artists themselves, with big hits scored by both Pharrell and Timbaland. And none of this activity seemed to slow their role. Working in parallel, Pharrell, Timbaland, and Missy began spreading the percolating peculiarities of Virginia Beach to hits that topped the charts over and over. And over again. Today on Hit Parade, we will trace the careers of Southern Virginian studio nerds Pharrell Williams, Timbaland, and Missy Elliott. Hit makers who, through the confidence of their productions, changed the sound of chart bound pop and kept scoring hits deep into the 2010. For 25 years now, it has seemed like Pharrell, Tim, and Missy could do anything, from fronting an alternative rock band, to getting a song with backward vocals on the chorus to the top of the charts. And that's where your hit parade marches today, the week ending November 16th, 2002, when Work It by Missy Elliott featuring Timbaland reached its peak of number two on the Hot 100, a fortnight after Pharrell Williams' alt-rock band Nerd went gold with their debut album In Search Of. It was a heady time for the Virginia Beach Wizards, when everything they touched 
turned to platinum. But how did Pharrell, Tim, and Missy keep the hits coming long past that imperial peak, keep the charts weird, and keep reinventing the sound of pop from Generation X to Gen Z? Some congratulations are in order for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2022, which was announced while this hit parade episode was in the works. Among the performers inducted this year are Pat Benatar, Duran Duran, Eminem, Lionel Richie, Carly Simon, Dolly Parton, and this chart-topping 80s synth-pop duo, Eurythmics. I'm playing Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart's 1983 number one hit, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, so you can listen to it with fresh ears. I know that's hard. Sweet Dreams is now considered classic pop and, frankly, adult contemporary wallpaper. It's not even contemporary anymore. I'll bet the last time you heard this song was in a checkout line, or maybe an oldies radio station. But when Eurythmics' breakthrough hit first emerged in 83, I must tell you, it seemed weird. Good weird. Its mastery of melody, rhythm, and arrangement were hard to miss even then, but Nothing on the radio sounded like this. The chilly lyrics about power and abuse. The odd way Lennox sings the word this as these. The way the synthesizers cycle around the melody and produce a lurching rhythm. The way it builds on the bridge to an electronic string solo. To say nothing of the music video, which featured Dave Stewart playing a computer keyboard as if it were a musical instrument, and Annie Lennox in drag in a men's suit with a red buzz haircut, singing deadpan to the camera in a corporate conference room while cows, yes, cows, marched around a conference table. The weirdness, the transgressiveness, this was what made Sweet Dreams great pop. It now sounds normal to us. It wasn't normal then. This is the story of hit music in general, stuff that at first upends our notion of what popular songs are supposed to sound like, then gets normalized. It's like when James Brown and his famous flames changed the emphasis of a four-beat measure from the fourth beat to, as James put it, the one, thus helping to invent and codify funk. This sounded off-kilter in 1965 on Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Then it just became what funk sounded like.
Or what about this? Does this seem like an obvious hit? Sounds like a banger now, right? It didn't in 1978. Kraftwerk's Trans-Europe Express peaked at number 67. But within just a couple of years, so much of pop music sounded like Kraftwerk, including Eurythmics, or Gary Newman, or The Human League, or, for that matter, first-wave hip-hop, like Africa Bombada's Planet Rock. Among the artists influenced by Kraftwerk was a young Pharrell Williams. He told us so himself in 2021. Pharrell appeared at that year's Rock Hall induction ceremony to induct Kraftwerk. For many of us, we were influenced by Kraftwerk without even realizing it. When Africa Bambata reached into a Creative Records and found Kraftwerk, that's when millions of hip-hop fans around the world, including myself, heard Kraftwerk's infectious beats for the very first time. I'm so lucky I got to meet the late Florian Schneider and let him know how much his music meant to all of us. We should all be thankful for Kraftwerk. It's why this recognition is so important. Welcome Kraftwerk to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like Kraftwerk or Eurythmics or James Brown, Pharrell Williams' whole career is about normalizing the formerly outré. So, too, was his friend and peer, Timothy Timbaland Mosley. Sounds that swoop, skitter, even sound cartoon-like, these were made into mainstream pop by Pharrell, Tim, and his friend, Missy Elliott. When the rain hits my window, I take it... But before these quirky geniuses, let's say it, nerds, could help pioneer the so-called Tidewater Tick Rhythm sound, they had to find a path into the music business. And those routes came through the blends of rap and R&B that had already begun percolating a decade earlier. This is the R&B trio Guy, formed and led by New York songwriter-producer Teddy Riley. That's singer Aaron Hall calling out Riley by name, Teddy Jam for me. Teddy Riley's claim to fame in the mid to late 80s was pioneering the subgenre New Jack Swing, a blend of R&B and rap production styles that made hip-hop palatable on pop and even black radio. Subsequently, this sound took over the charts. If you were listening to hit music in the late 80s, you surely heard a Teddy Riley production, whether it was the seminal 1987 Keith Sweat hit, I Want Her, or the 1988 Bobby Brown hit, My Prerogative, New Jack Swing's quintessential hit, 
which was ghostwritten and co-produced by Teddy Riley. By 1989, when that Bobby Brown single went to number one, Riley all but owned New Jack Swing. That year, he even had one of his protege groups, Rex and Effect, co-led by his brother Markel Riley, record a song called New Jack Swing. Let's put a pin in the name Rex and Effect. We'll come back to them. What makes Teddy Riley pivotal to this story is what he did in the early 90s. The native of Harlem, looking to get away from the rough and tumble of New York City, moved to Virginia Beach, Virginia, setting up a small studio in a residential neighborhood. This would prove to be a catalyst to the entire Virginia Beach scene, which wasn't really a scene before Riley arrived, even though the town was filled with talent, very young, very raw talent. This is a 1991 demo tape by SBI, a rap crew slash production team made up of Virginia Beach high schoolers Pharrell Williams, his cousin Timothy Mosley, Tim's friend Melvin Barcliff, who would later give himself the rap name Magoo, and Pharrell's Filipino-American buddy Chad Hugo. Williams and Hugo would later form the production team, The Neptunes, and Tim and Melvin would later record as Timbaland and Magoo. But all that was still in their future in 1991. SBI stood for Surrounded by Idiots. Yes, these guys were total geeks long before they were famous. And the demo tape was raw but showed promise, with fairly catchy beats for a bunch of wood-shopping teenagers. This demo tape found its way to New Virginia Beach resident Teddy Riley who also, reportedly, caught an early version of Pharrell and Chad's side project, The Neptunes, at a high school talent show. Riley began letting the teenagers hang around his studio. Quote, When Teddy was living here, he was the only major superstar living here, Magoo would later tell Red Bull Music Academy. Teddy was huge. He inspired us because having someone locally where you could ride by their studio was great. We didn't have anything like that before." Unquote. Within a year or two of setting up shop in Virginia Beach, Riley was already making hit records from that studio. Perhaps you know this one by, here they are again, Rex and Effect. Rump Shaker, 
a rap single with the pop and b swagger of new jack swing would turn out to be a blockbuster hit peaking at number two on the hot 100 in 1992 the same year as the similarly posterior centric hit baby got back the rump shaker video shot in virginia beach was perhaps predictably filled with lascivious images of bikini clad women but the more important virginia beach connection what makes rump shaker historically significant was that it served as the songwriting debut of 19 year old pharrell williams Teddy Riley takes a verse on Rump Shaker, and Riley deputized Pharrell to write that verse. It's got some of the catchiest bits in the song, including some lines Pharrell borrowed from an earlier hit by the band DeBarge. I like the stylish clothes you wear, uh, it's just the little things you do, uh, that makes me want to get with you. Williams and his buddy Chad Hugo learned from Riley how to produce syncopated hooks and thumping beats. Quote, we were all technicians in Virginia, Riley later told Red Bull Music Academy. It wasn't because of Pharrell that I signed the Neptunes, and it wasn't because of Chad that I signed them. It was both of them. I knew from those two I was going to get a great production team." Unquote. The following year, Pharrell made his recording debut on another Riley-affiliated production that we've played in previous episodes of Hit Parade, the remix of SWV's Right Here that mixes in the hook of Michael Jackson's Human Nature. On Right Here, Human Nature, the voice you hear chanting SWV's name that's Pharrell Williams. Pharrell's cousin Timothy, however, followed his own path out of high school. Tim and Pharrell amicably broke up SBI and agreed to pursue their own paths. The future Timbaland was even more of a studio rat than Pharrell. He set up a mixing board in his bedroom and worked on beats endlessly when he wasn't DJing parties as DJ Timmy Tim. In his memoir, The Emperor of Sound, Timbaland admits he probably would have started producing new Jack Swing tracks like the ones Teddy Riley was doing if he could have afforded an emu sampler and an 808 drum machine. Tim's beatmaking might have remained a hobby if his pal Magoo hadn't introduced him to an ambitious vocalist from Portsmouth, Virginia, who was singing in a girl group called Faze, F-A-Y-Z-E. Her name was Missy Elliott. Quote, Missy didn't have the typical look of a pop star, Timbaland writes in his memoir. She wasn't super skinny, and she was a tomboy. 
so many people in the industry would dismiss a girl like Missy out of hand. She came into my home studio, and after the polite hellos and a few compliments about my mixtapes, she asked to hear some of the beats I'd been working on. I could tell she was taking it all in. She was pulling the music apart and putting it back together in her head, the same way that I did." Unquote. Convinced he had found a kindred spirit, Timbaland and Missy began working together. This recording, Phase's first move, was produced by Timbaland. What also impressed Tim was Missy's unshakable confidence. She was convinced they were destined to be stars, and she generously talked up Tim's beats whenever she promoted Faze's recordings. That finally bore fruit when another superstar act passed through town. Vocal troupe Jodeci were the self-styled bad boys of R&B, the opposite of more clean-cut groups like Boys to Men. Signed to Sean Puff Daddy Combs's Uptown Records, Jodeci carried themselves like rappers, but scored hits with sweet soul ballads like their cover of Stevie Wonder's Lately. Jodeci's main songwriter, Donald DeGreat, a.k.a. Devante Swing, was forming his own production house called DeBasement, and after passing through Virginia Beach and hearing Faze sing following a Jodeci concert, Devante Swing not only signed Missy Elliott's girl group, but, at Missy's insistence, also signed up their beatmaker, Tim Mosley. Devante Swing transported the lot of them from Virginia Beach to an apartment near his studio in Teaneck, New Jersey, and he gave them all new names. Faze, he renamed Sista, and he gave Tim the nickname Timbaland, after the hiking shoe that had taken off in the hood in the early 90s. Quote, nobody outside of Virginia Beach knew DJ Timmy Tim, Timberland writes in his memoir. But everybody knew Timberlands. So the nickname stuck. Timbaland made his debut as a guest rapper on Jodeci's late 1993 track, In the Meanwhile. On that same Jodeci album, Diary of a Mad Band, Missy got a guest spot too, on Won't Waste You. But these tracks were deep cuts, not hits. And while they were working on Jodeci's material, the focus shifted away from Missy's group, Sista. 
Devante would forget about Tim and Missy for months at a time while Jodeci toured and his protégés toiled away in debasement. Eventually, Sista did get signed to Elektra Records in 1994 and scored a minor hit with Brand New, a hip-hop soul jam in the mold of Mary J. Blige, co-produced by Devante Swing and Timbaland, and sung by Missy Elliott. Brand New reached a modest number 84 on the R&B chart in the late summer of 1994. Given that poor performance, Elektra shelved the Sista album, and Tim and Missy continued to find themselves unheralded, underpaid, and often ignored by Devante. Still, for the nearly three years of their apprenticeship in the Jodeci Star's teen-ex circle, Tim and Missy amassed hours of studio time and began to develop signature sonic styles that would never make it on Jodeci records. In his memoir, Timbaland writes, quote, I'll always give credit to Devante for what I learned. The problem was that we were not consistently compensated, unquote. It wasn't until 1996 that things finally began to turn around for Missy Elliott and Timbaland. First she, then he, finally broke away from Devante's swing. Each was talking up the other to their acquaintances in the business, helping to get each other gigs. As she shifted from singing to rapping, Elliott was developing a unique vocal style. In a memorable guest appearance on a remix of a 1996 Gina Thompson single called The Things That You Do, Missy came up with a delightfully weird lyric that, in the great rock and roll tradition of such rhythmic gibberish as a wop babaloo bob a womp bam boom, wasn't even really English. I'm running to use like shoes or you lose and I choose from the fly things that you do. For Timbaland, the breakthrough came via an equally quirky production he devised for an R&B singer he met during his years with Devante Swing, a man from Washington, D.C., born Elgin Baylor Lumpkin, who went by the name Genuine. While they were all still toiling in debasement, working alongside the producer Static Major, Tim produced a weird, lurching, belching club jam for Genuine. Everyone in debasement who heard the beat considered it one of the catchiest things they'd ever heard, but it didn't sound like a Jodeci record. Devante's swing had no interest in it, so Tim took it with him when he left Devante's employ. And when Genuine got signed to Epic Records in 1996, that Timbaland Static Major track would be Genuine's first single, a cheeky metaphor for sex they called Pony. 
he first devised it in a studio in New Jersey, Pony is arguably ground zero for the quirky Virginia Beach sound. Before the Neptunes or Missy Elliott scored their own strings of hits, Timbaland's Pony production showed how a track could be off-kilter, highly syncopated, and unusually catchy. Pony soared up the charts, reaching number six on the Hot 100 and spending two weeks at number one on the R&B chart. As pivotal as Genuine's hit was for Timbaland, a new acquaintance had an even greater impact on the arc of both his career and Missy's. By the time Aaliyah met Timbaland and Missy Elliott in 1996, she had already generated a platinum album at the age of 15. She'd also been briefly secretly married, illegally and underage, to that first album's mastermind, R. Kelly. Having cut ties with Kelly and her first album's label, Aaliyah was looking for a completely new sound. Quote, I really like what you two have been working on, she told Tim and Missy in a Detroit studio. I really want that edgy, off-center style for my next album. I don't want to play it safe, unquote. Tim and Missy liked Aaliyah right away. She felt instantly like family to them. And so they felt confident enough to play her a demo of a song produced by Timbaland with lyrics by Missy, If Your Girl Only Knew. The rumbling, loping beat, the lyrics that revealed a woman's innermost thoughts, Aaliyah loved it instantly. Tim and Missy wound up staying in Detroit to write and produce roughly half of Aaliyah's second album. If Your Girl Only Knew was chosen as the album's first single, a number one R&B, number 11 pop hit in the fall of 1996. And a second hit by Tim and Missy gave the Aaliyah album its title, One in a Million. The One in a Million album went double platinum and established Timbaland and Missy Elliott as in-demand hitmakers. Missy herself had a high enough profile now that she was invited not only to contribute to the debut album by R&B trio 702, she even provided a featured rap on their number 12 R&B, number 32 pop hit, Stila. But the coup de grace was when Elektra, the label that had signed Sista back in 1994 before shelving their debut, now signed Missy, going by the nom de rap Missy Misdemeanor Elliot, as a solo recording artist. 
her 1997 debut album would be produced solely by her production partner, Timbaland. And together, they would make an album all music's Steve Huey would later call, quote, a boundary-shattering postmodern masterpiece. Missy Misdemeanor Elliott's debut album was packed with unpredictable arrangements and stuttering breakbeats. It shifted the center of both hip-hop and pop. Missy both sang and rapped on the album, often shifting back and forth within the same song. The album's centerpiece was a deconstruction of Memphis soul singer Ann Peebles' 1973 hit, I Can't Stand the Rain. Which Missy and Timbaland turned into the percolating fantasia, The Rain, Supa Dupa Fly. That parenthetical phrase gave the album its title. The Rain, Supa Dupa Fly, was only a modest hit. Issued only as a radio track, not a retail single, it couldn't chart on the Hot 100 and appeared only on the R&B chart as a B-side. But its influence was profound. What made the song iconic was its music video, in which Missy danced in an inflatable patent leather suit resembling a billowy trash bag, its size inflated visually even further by video auteur Hype Williams's fisheye lens. Rather than attempt to fit the mold of a svelte R&B diva, Missy made herself extra large, deliberately freaky, and visually arresting. The Rain, Supa Dupa Fly, routinely makes lists of the greatest videos of all time. A recent countdown by Rolling Stone magazine ranked it 16th between videos by Duran Duran and The White Stripes. And it propelled the album and Elliot to instant success. Released in July 1997, the Supa Dupa Fly album debuted at number three on the album chart and quickly went platinum. The CD generated four hits on the R&B and pop charts, including the Debrat featuring Socket To Me, and Hit Em With The He, which built on the nonsense lyrics Missy had coined on the Gina Thompson remix just one year earlier. At the end of 1997, Missy Misdemeanor Elliott's Supa Dupa Fly album was ranked one of the 10 best of the year by scores of critics, making sixth place on that year's Village Voice Paz and Jop poll. Missy and her producer Timbaland hadn't just scored a hit. 
they had rebooted hip-hop in their oddball image. Accordingly, their career opportunities exploded. Missy, for her part, took production and guest vocal duties on tracks by everyone from solo Spice Girl Melanie B. To R&B queen Whitney Houston. As for Timbaland, he was now free to release an album as a frontline artist himself. Tim partnered with his old Virginia Beach buddy, Magoo. Their joint album, Welcome to Our World, went platinum and gave Timbaland and Magoo their own hit with the number 12 pop, number one rap single, Up Jumps Da Boogie, featuring vocals from both Missy Elliott and Aaliyah. After a decade of beat making, Tim was still finding hot sounds in unlikely places. For his and Magoo's second single, he took, no kidding, the theme to the 80s NBC TV hit, Night Rider. And turned it into the basis for their 1998 hit, Clock Strikes. That beat went so viral, rapper Busta Rhymes copped it for a remix of his song Turn It Up, Fire It Up, which also rode a Knight Rider sample into the top 10. But Timbaland had an even cooler beat in his back pocket for 1998. And the beneficiary would be Aaliyah. Crammed into a single night of recording to make a deadline for the soundtrack to the Eddie Murphy film Dr. Doolittle, Are You That Somebody? went on to become Aaliyah's most acclaimed single, and the ultimate showcase for Timbaland's beat-making genius. Built out of stuttering guitar licks, beatboxing, a halting rap from Tim himself, and even a sample of a baby cooing that Tim wove into the rhythm in homage to baby girl Aaliyah. track sounded futuristic, almost impossible to sing over, but Aaliyah's fluttery start-stop vocals floated above the beat and tied together Are You That Somebody, reaching number four on Hot 100 Airplay at the peak of the Great War Against the Single and number one for eight weeks on the R&B Airplay chart, 
Are You That Somebody became Aaliyah's most enduring hit, riding the charts for nearly eight months and still among her most played tracks today. It affirmed Timbaland as the bleeding-edge producer of his day. Meanwhile, Tim's cousin Pharrell Williams and his partner Chad Hugo were taking a more circuitous route to production supremacy. Though the duo who called themselves the Neptunes broke earlier than Tim, thanks to their mentorship under Teddy Riley, by the mid-90s, Pharrell and Chad found themselves occasional guns for hire, backbenchers still feeling out the contours of their sound. In 1996, while Timbaland was producing Genuine and Aaliyah, the Neptunes were writing and producing a track for Sean Combs's girl group protege's Total. And though the beat on Total's When Boy Meets Girl was built out of a Bee Gees sample, the dry, brittle drums and stripped-down production hinted at the Neptunes' future direction. In 1997, the Neptune sound evolved a little further on another track in the Sean Puff Daddy Combs universe, rapper Mace's track Lookin' At Me. Its minor key piano and synth lines became another Neptune's sonic signature. Chosen as the final single from Mace's multi-platinum Harlem World album, Lookin' At Me peaked at number eight on both the pop and R&B charts in the summer of 1998, giving Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo their first official top ten hit as frontline producers. But it was another hit later in 98 by rapper Noriega that finally established the Neptune sound once and for all. Super Thug was built out of a melody line from a Korg synthesizer programmed to emulate the medieval instrument, the clavichord. That nagging, proudly synthetic sound, totally unnatural and in your face, cut through the radio like glass. Though Super Thug only reached number 15 on the R&B chart and number 36 on the Hot 100, it was deeply influential. Suddenly, a range of artists wanted a piece of Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo and their uncluttered, dry, brittle production sound, including Wu-Tang Clan rapper Old Dirty Bastard, for whom the duo produced the top 10 hit Got Your Money, and New Orleans rapper Mystical, 
whose career was massively boosted by the Neptune's immortal production on his top 20 hit, Shake Ya Ass. Like Timbaland, who found his equal, muse, and ultimate frontwoman in Missy Elliott, Around this time, Pharrell and Chad teamed with a female discovery of their own, a young New Yorker just out of high school named Kalise Rogers, who recorded simply as Kalise. And out of the box, Kalise projected fierceness. This song is for all the women out there that have been lied to by their men. And I know y'all been lied to over and over. Caught Out There was a diatribe against cheating men, an unconventional R&B track with the swagger of a hip-hop beef record and the crunch of alternative rock. Pharrell and Chad wrote it as a showcase for Kalise, who possesses a sweet singing voice, but quite literally shouts the chorus. A top 10 R&B hit in 1999 and a top 10 pop hit in half a dozen countries worldwide, Caught Out There was, artistically, a major win for both Kalise and the Neptunes, announcing her as a new talent and affirming their status as top-tier producers. It was also deeply admired by their old friend, Tim. Coincidentally, when the Neptunes were recording with Khalees in Master Sound Studios in Virginia Beach, Timbaland and Missy Elliott were working next door. They all remained admirers of each other's work, and in this priceless interview segment, recorded two decades later, at which Pharrell and Timbaland shared a stage, Tim recalled hearing the track for the first time. And me and Missy was working in the, I guess I would call it Studio A, and then they had a Studio B. Yeah. And I walked to the back door, Missy was in there doing something, and I heard, I hate you so much right now. And I said, Missy, you gotta hear this. And I was like, oh man, I wish I had made that beat. That was the beat, and I, I didn't make it, but for real, man, I was like, oh, this is crazy. <laughs> I just, just kept listening to the door. She's like, come on, come on. We gotta finish our spreaking. I said, I. I'm done That's for the night. Pharrell and for Chad, Tim and Missy, by the turn of the millennium, each team had found a path to music biz supremacy with their own unique takes on the syncopated, spacious Virginia Beach sound. In some cases, they even worked with the same artists, showcasing their respective styles. Take Jay-Z, for example. In 1999, Timbaland produced Jay's acclaimed single with Texas rap duo UGK, Big Pimpin', and it was a paragon of Tim's clever way with an unconventional sample. Its memorable flute sample was taken from Egyptian artist Hossam Ramzi's track, Kosada Kosada. We doing Big Pimpin', we spending cheese, check them out now. Big Pimpin', on BLAD, we doing Big Pimpin', I'm 
Big Pimpin' reached number 18 on the Hot 100 and number 6 on the R&B chart in the summer of 2000. Less than six months later, Jay-Z was back on both charts with the Neptunes produced I Just Wanna Love You, parentheses, Give It To Me. This track showcased not only the duo's clavichord synth lines, but also the falsetto voice of Pharrell Williams, who sang the chorus. Jay loved that chorus so much, he lip-synced it in the song's video. I'm a hustler, baby. Hustler. I just want you to know. I Just Wanna Love You was an even bigger hit for Jay-Z, reaching number 11 pop, number one R&B. It would not be the last time Pharrell's falsetto was heard on a chart-topping hit. As for Missy Elliott, she was now both a superstar and a mogul. She launched her own label, The Goldmind, distributed by Elektra Records, and it produced a hit quickly, with Make It Hot, a number five pop, number two R&B hit by singer Nicole Ray. She went by the mononym Nicole and, like Missy, hailed from Portsmouth, Virginia. Elliot commanded the producer's chair for most of Nicole's album. The Missy Elliott sound, such as it was, was rooted more in lyrics and attitude, women expressing sexual agency, sass, and joie de vivre. You could hear it on a song she co-wrote and produced for 702, the girl group trio who had helped break Missy in 1996. They took the Elliott-penned Where My Girls At to number four pop, number three R&B in the summer of 1999. Missy doubled down on not only the sass, but the sexual freakiness on her own single, Hot Boys, a top five pop, number one R&B smash later that same year. Hot Boys was the biggest single from The Real World, Missy's own second album, which came packed with hits, guests, and attitude. For example, the lead single, She's a Bitch, which used the titular expletive as both a term of scorn and admiration. Often, the bitch was Missy herself. She's a bitch when you say my name. Talk more junk, but won't look my way. She's a bitch. See, I got more cheese. So back on up while I roll up my sleeve. Elliot's bond with Timbaland was as strong as ever. He produced all of De Real World's hits, and within a year, they were back at work on a third Missy Elliott album, which would come out in 2001 under the title Miss E, So Addictive. And its lead single might well have been the most advanced, progressive track the pair had produced yet. On Jay-Z's Big Pimpin', Timbaland had experimented with sampling Egyptian music. 
But on Missy Elliott's Get Your Freak On, Tim made Big Pimpin seem almost conventional. Has a hit single ever had a more descriptive title? Get Your Freak On delivered exactly what it promised, a freaky, instantly infectious amalgam of globe-trotting sounds, Japanese phrases, tip-tapping bhangra beats, a sample of a German record that itself sampled Punjabi singer Master Dilbahar, even an instant where Missy audibly spits. It should have been too weird for the radio, but by 2001, Missy, Timbaland, and by extension the Neptunes had retrained pop fans' ears to embrace the weird. Get Your Freak On reached number seven on the Hot 100 in June of 01, Elliott's second ever top 10 hit after Hot Boys. And it won universal critical acclaim, even more than The Rain Super Dupa Fly had. Get Your Freak On ranked first among all singles in the 2001 Pazenjop Critics Poll. In 2021, in an update to its 500 Greatest Songs of All Time poll, Rolling Stone ranked Get Your Freak On eighth overall, right above singles by The Beach Boys and Fleetwood Mac. Quote, even after 20 years, the magazine said, it still sounds like the future. Now a consistent hitmaker, Missy Elliott came right back to the top 40 just a month later. And speaking of freakiness, One Minute Man was a shameless ode to female sexual gratification. It reached number 15. Around the same time, Aaliyah was releasing a new album as well. In the years since her and Timbaland's 1998 triumph with Are You That Somebody, the artist Tim affectionately called Baby Girl had become a cross-media megastar, not only continuing to score hits, but also breaking onto the silver screen. Aaliyah made her movie debut alongside martial artist Jet Li in the action romance Romeo Must Die. From the soundtrack to that film, Aaliyah scored her first ever Hot 100 number one with Try Again, on which producer Timbaland rapped about giving her a dope beat to step to. By 2001, after a busy five years, 
Aaliyah was finally preparing her third album, which would be self-titled and would feature several collaborations with Timbaland. The album's lead single, We Need a Resolution, continued the globe-trotting theme of Tim's recent work with Jay-Z and Missy Elliott, sampling a duduk from a film score to give the track a Middle Eastern vibe. Aaliyah's album dropped in July 2001 and debuted all the way up at number two on the Billboard 200, her highest album chart position to date. The CD was packed with Timbaland tracks, like More Than a Woman, a planned future single for which Aaliyah shot a music video in Los Angeles in August 2001. After shooting that video in LA, Aaliyah boarded a plane to the Bahamas to shoot another clip for a different track called Rock the Boat. And it was on that trip, coming back from the shoot, that tragedy struck. On August 25th, 2001, Aaliyah and her entourage packed onto a Cessna twin-engine plane that became overloaded and crashed shortly after takeoff. The pilot and all eight passengers were killed. Aaliyah was just 22 years old. Morning for Aaliyah, across the music industry and among fans, was profound. The self-titled Aaliyah album rose to number one on the Billboard 200 just after the tragedy, and by the way, just days before the horrific tragedy of 9/11. With no prompting from the record label, radio stations and grieving fans homed in on a track in the middle of the album called I Care For You, which had been written for Aaliyah by Missy Elliott and produced by Timbaland, the two creators who'd gotten their biggest break in 1996 thanks to the teenager they called Baby Girl. Tim and Missy were profoundly affected by the loss of Aaliyah, and it cast a pall over their work for years. Mourning the loss would test their friendship and dig an emotional hole that would take years to climb out of, even as they continued to score some of their biggest hits and enjoy some of their greatest chart triumphs. By 2001, the Neptunes, Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo, had massively grown their clientele. That year alone, they produced hits for everyone from Usher to Ray J to Foxy Brown. But one particular client was drawing more attention than all the others. 
A Slave For You was the lead single of Britney Spears' 2001 album, simply titled Britney. It was a big departure for Spears, whose last two CDs had led off with tracks produced by Swedish pop mastermind Max Martin. I'm a Slave For You was a track Pharrell and Chad had originally demoed for Janet Jackson. But when she passed, Spears, eagerly looking to shed her teen pop image, jumped at the chance to record it. She premiered the single at the 2001 MTV Video Music Awards in a headline-grabbing performance that found Britney wearing a barely-there outfit and a massive albino python snake. The performance at the VMAs nearly overshadowed the song, which was only a medium-sized hit for Britney, peaking at number 27 on the Hot 100. Critics compared it not only to Janet Jackson, but also Prince. And even despite the modest chart performance, it was a successful crossover for all involved. Britney generated her most R&B-leaning track to date. It was actually the first of her songs to crack the R&B chart. And the Neptunes proved they could work with a center of the bullseye pop star. Indeed, it could be argued that, sonically, Britney adapted to them more than they did to her. By 2002, which would prove the high watermark of the Neptunes' career as producers, Pharrell and Chad were pulling a range of acts over to their side of the hit-making street. That year alone, they applied their bouncy, skittering, hip-hop-meets-pop sound to hits by rapper Busta Rhymes, Boy band in sync. And as noted at the top of this episode, in sync singer turned soloist Justin Timberlake. But the most explosive of these hits came from St. Louis rapper Nelly. Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo built his track out of an interpolation of an old hit by go-go pioneer Chuck Brown, his 1979 R&B number one smash, Bustin' Loose. Neptunes flipped this hook, added their percolating percussion and Nelly's rap, and turned it into the 2002 Song of the Summer Hot in Here. Like like uh, uh, so 
In June of 02, Hot In Here topped the Hot 100, becoming the Neptune's first ever number one pop single. And it stayed there for seven weeks. Billboard ranked it the third biggest hit of that year. What made 2002 so remarkable for the Neptunes was their versatility. Their pop acceptance hadn't damaged their hip-hop credibility. The Neptunes produced the year's most acclaimed rap album, Lord Willen, by Clips, a pair of brothers who'd known Pharrell since their days as teenagers in Virginia Beach. The CD by Clips generated two cutting-edge top 10 R&B, top 40 pop hits, Grindin' And when the last time. When the last time you heard it like this. Smoke some, drink some, get ripped. And make the girls in the party just strip. And that same year, Williams and Hugo released a rock-leaning band album they'd been tinkering with since 2001. A side project they called N-E-R-D which supposedly stood for No One Ever Really Dies, but most fans appropriately just called Nerd. Nerd's debut album, In Search Of, was 2002's sleeper hit, never rising above number 56 on the album chart, but quietly going gold and even spinning off minor hit songs at multiple radio formats, including the R&B chart, where Lap Dance reached number 85, and more remarkably, the modern rock chart, where Rockstar reached number 36. Pharrell and Chad had pulled off a neat trick. All of their handiwork sounded distinctly like them. You could often guess when a hit was a Neptune's track, but each song built its own little world. For their part, Missy Elliott and Timbaland weren't having a bad 2002 either, despite the lingering pain from the 2001 death of Aaliyah. To distract themselves, Missy and Tim poured themselves into their work, both for others and for Missy herself. One of their highest-profile success stories was a singer they'd met during their years with Devante Swing. Charlene Keys, who went by the stage name Tweet. This, by the way, was years before Twitter existed. Tweet scored a gold album and a top 10 single with the Timbaland-produced, Missy Elliott-penned hit, Oops, Oh My, 
Missy, still finding new ways to express female sexual agency, wrote the song about a woman's self-admiration and arousal at the sight of her own beauty. But Missy and Tim's greatest triumph of 2002 was Elliot's fourth studio album, Under Construction, which Missy dedicated to Aaliyah. You would think the album might be somber, but Missy decided her commemoration of Aaliyah would be an all-out party, led by her all-time biggest pop hit. A song that, a year after Get Your Freak On, was no less innovative, no less ebullient. Work It was the ultimate affirmation that the public had acclimated to the Virginia Beach team's wackiness. It was Missy at her most irresistible, even when it was unintelligible. By the way, for those who still don't know, that backwards line in the chorus? That's just, I put my thang down, flip it, and reverse it, played backwards, right after Missy has wrapped that line forwards. The song was like a collection of memes before we had a word for memes. Animal noises to represent male body parts. References to Prince, Halle Berry, and the character Kunta Kinte from Roots. And, as best as anyone can tell, the first popular recorded reference to a Calipigian woman's posterior as a badonkadonk. The music video, too, was mesmerizing and joyous, with appearances by producer Timbaland and a limber child dancer named Allison Stoner, with kinetic dance moves by Missy and a troupe of breakdancers. It would go on to win Video of the Year at the MTV VMAs one year later. As for the song, Work It climbed all the way to number two on the Hot 100 in November 2002. And it surely would have gone to number one if it didn't have the misfortune to peek behind Eminem's 12-week blockbuster, Lose Yourself. Work It held at number two for 10 straight weeks, the longest run in the runner-up slot without reaching number one, a record Missy tied with Foreigner's 1981 hit, Waiting for a Girl Like You. Missy had her revenge on Eminem, if you can call it that, with the critics. Work It topped the 2002 Paz and Jop poll, the second straight year Elliot took that title from the critics. And two decades later, it ranks number 56 on Rolling Stone's Greatest Song poll. Its legacy is secure. 
Entering 2003, Missy Elliott's Under Construction album was platinum, on its way to double platinum, making it her all-time bestseller. The album produced another tongue-twisting hit with Gossip Folks, a number eight team-up with rapper Ludacris. But this massive success would be hard to follow up. Missy and Timbaland returned to the studio right away in 2003 to produce another album. And that's when their collaboration started to fray. The pair reportedly bickered in the studio, with Elliot rejecting most of the beats Timbaland brought her. In his memoir, Tim theorizes that they were, quote, both still mourning Aaliyah, and they were taking that sublimated grief out on each other. When the album, This Is Not a Test, reached stores in the fall of 03, it did go platinum on the strength of Missy's reputation, but it fell short of the top 10, her only album to do so. And its only hit, Past That Dutch, an attempt to recreate the zaniness of Work It, underperformed on the charts, peaking at number 27 pop, number 17 R&B. It would wind up being the last time a Missy Elliott album would be primarily produced by Timbaland. Two years later, for her follow-up The Cookbook, Timbaland produced only a couple of deep cuts, and the album's lead single, the number three smash Lose Control, was produced by Elliott herself. Timbaland did produce one more iconic hit in 2003, this time for Jay-Z's The Black Album, the acclaimed favorite of future President Barack Obama, Dirt Off Your Shoulder. But after Dirt reached number five on the Hot 100 in early 2004, Timbaland went into a two-year wilderness period, where most of the tracks he produced failed to hit, missing the top 10 or even the top 40. Tim kept himself busy working on albums for artists ranging from Brandy to LL Cool J to Bubba Sparks. But there was a sense in the industry that maybe his production style had peaked. Meanwhile, his peer, Pharrell, was only moving more toward the front. In the summer of 2003, Pharrell issued his debut single under his own name titled Frontin, a languid hip-hop jam sung entirely in falsetto, with a supporting rap from his friend Jay-Z. 
It was an auspicious career launch, reaching number five on the Hot 100 by the fall and suggesting that the toothsome, tattooed producer could become a star artist in his own right. But for the time being, Pharrell was too preoccupied. Most of his vocals were deployed on singles he and Chad Hugo produced for other artists, including Snoop Dogg's number six hit, Beautiful. the debonair Change Clothes, the first single from Jay-Z's The Black Album. Behind the mixing board, the Neptunes were still sonically pushing the envelope. At the end of 03, they gave their protege, Khalees, her biggest ever hit with Milkshake, a number three smash built off of a skeletal synthesizer beat. And in 2004, the even more stripped down Drop It Like It's Hot gave Snoop Dogg his first ever Hot 100 number one hit. Take a second. Matter of fact, you should take 4B and think before you fuck a little skateboard B. When the pimp's in the crib, ma. Drop it like it's hot. Drop it like These it's hot. These hits helped like paper hot. over the Neptune's hit that had the wrong kind of notoriety. Pharrell and Chad had written and produced the third single from Justin Timberlake's Justified album a sumptuous dance track called Rock Your Body that reached number five in 2003. Unfortunately, Rock Your Body later became infamous when Timberlake performed it at the 2004 Super Bowl halftime show while triggering the so-called wardrobe malfunction on Janet Jackson. The line, gonna have you naked by the end of this song, the Neptunes wrote that line. Even though it is now hard to hear this song without recalling the incident, because the societal impact of the wardrobe malfunction largely and unfairly fell on Janet Jackson, not Justin Timberlake, not much rubbed off on the Neptunes either. In fact, one year later, in the spring of 2005, the Neptunes scored yet another number one pop hit, and this was their first for a woman performer. If Work It could be called a meme song before memes, Hollaback Girl was a clapback song before clapbacks. Gwen Stefani, front woman for the ska rock band No Doubt, claimed she wrote it in response to some derogatory comments made against her by rocker Courtney Love. 
Pharrell Williams channeled that sass into a track built like a cheerleader chant. Its beat borrowed from Queen's We Will Rock You, its basic structure from Tony Basil's Mickey, and its titular phrase from a prior hit by rapper Fabulous called Youngin' Holla Back. On Gwen Stefani's solo debut album, Love Angel Music Baby, Hollaback Girl was by far the biggest hit, reaching the top of the Hot 100 in just six weeks, after prior Stefani singles produced by Nellie Hooper and Dr. Dre underperformed. It was the first single of the digital era to sell more than a million downloads. Later that year, Gwen Stefani returned the favor to Pharrell, singing the hook on his second solo single, Can I Have It Like That. Can I have it like that? You got it like that. Can I have it like that? You got it like that. Can I have it like that? You got it like that. Can I have it like that? At the halfway mark of the aughts, Pharrell Williams had established himself along with production partner Chad Hugo, as the king of quirky, bespoke hitmaking. It had been a couple of years since Pharrell's cousin Timbaland had scored a major hit, but that was all about to change. In a 2006 interview with British newspaper The Guardian, Timbaland said, quote, I don't really like where music is at right now. It's boring, too watered down. Nobody's taken chances. It's all in the box, and the box gets too tight. Somebody's got to break the box, bust it open. To me, making music is about taking risks. Unquote. When the man born Timothy Mosley gave this interview, he was coming out of his most fallow period of hitmaking since his breakthrough a decade earlier. But Timbaland's hitless period was about to end, in high style. In part, this was due to a new vanity label, Mosley Music Group, that Tim launched in 2006 with Universal Music. But really, the seeds for Tim's commercial return had been planted years earlier, at the height of his first wave of success. This is a remix Timbaland produced of a 2001 hit called Turn Off the Light by Nelly Furtado, a Canadian singer-songwriter of Portuguese descent from British Columbia. Furtado's music in the early aughts could best be described as pop rock with a world beat vibe. Tim's 2001 remix brought out the hip-hop elements in Furtado's pop hit. 
Five years later, when Nelly Furtado's contract with the now-defunct DreamWorks Records label was absorbed into the Universal Music Group, Timbaland signed Furtado to his Mosley Music Group label and began producing an album for her. Furtado's prior LP, an earnest worldbeat collection called Folklore, had been a flop in the U.S., Together, she and Tim decided to reinvent her career from the ground up. Neither of them had much to lose. Promiscuous was a total 180 from Nelly Furtado's previous output. Even at her poppiest, her early hits had not been either as hip-hop derived nor as sexually bold. But from its title to its rapped verses, traded back and forth with Timbaland himself, who was given featured billing on the track, Promiscuous presented Nelly as a reborn club diva, slinky, sexy, and sly. They call me Thomas, last name Crown. Recognize game, I'm a lay mine down. I'm a big girl, I can handle myself, but if I get lonely, Promiscuous reached number one on the Hot 100 in early July 2006, the same week the album she and Timbaland produced, called Loose, debuted at number one on the album chart. The CD was a global smash. In the UK that same week, a different loose track called Man Eater was number one. Furtado's improbable reinvention was just as momentous for Timbaland. Promiscuous was his first Hot 100 number one as a producer since Aaliyah's Try Again back in 2000. Timbaland would not wait long for another chart topper, however. Actually, he waited about a month. I'm bringing sexy back. Sexy Back was the first single from Future Sex Love Sounds, the second solo album by Justin Timberlake, which Timbaland executive produced. As on Promiscuous, Timbaland could be heard all over Sexy Back, trading lines with Justin and directing the song's kinetic flow. Almost instantly, the song's titular refrain, I'm bringing sexy back, became a catchphrase. Quote, the Justin single is a risk, Timbaland told The Guardian. It's a different record. Some people say they like it, some people don't know. But when you hear it the second time, that's when it starts to hit you. A record like that will stay around longer than a record that hits you right away." Unquote. It didn't take long to catch on. In its eighth week on the Hot 100, Sexy Back reached number one just a month after Promiscuous fell out of the top spot. 
Furtado's hit had spent six weeks on top. Timberlake's settled in for seven. Producer Timbaland had gone from virtually hitless to the biggest hitmaker on the charts in just a few months. And he wasn't done. My Love, Justin Timberlake's follow-up hit, reached number one just three weeks after Sexy Back finished its run on top. With an innovative structure marked by swirling keyboards and a pulsating beat, My Love was the most critically acclaimed track on Future Sex Love Sounds. Pitchfork magazine named it their top single of 2006. My Love was Timbaland's most acclaimed production since his work with Missy Elliott, and it affirmed that he still had both the ear for a hit and the ability to make the left of center become the middle of the road. Rolling into 2007, productions by Timbaland just kept topping the charts. In February, another single by Nelly Furtado, the brooding, shimmering Say It Right, reached number one. And was followed the very next week by a third number one from Justin, the equally brooding What Goes Around Comes Around. Timbaland could be heard on both hits, not just as their sonic craftsman, but even adding small vocal touches. Like a Hollywood auteur, Tim was making cameos across his body of work. So it stood to reason that this might be the time for him to try stepping out in front once again, for the first time since the late 90s. After all the hits Timbaland had produced for Nelly Furtado and Justin Timberlake, they were eager to return the favor, and they stepped up right away. Officially billed to Timbaland featuring Nelly Furtado and Justin Timberlake, Give It To Me was the first single from Shock Value, Tim's first album under his own name in more than half a decade. Give It To Me reached number one on the Hot 100 in April 2007, and Shock Value spent the rest of that year spinning off hits. These included the bubbling electro-funk track The Way I Are, featuring singer Carrie Hilson, a number three hit in August, right. 
in November, the number two hit, Apologize. Which, in a flex, was credited to Timbaland featuring One Republic. Tim had only subtly remixed this melodramatic ballad by One Republic, a Colorado Springs pop rock band fronted by singer-songwriter Ryan Tedder. But One Republic didn't mind taking second billing to the producer who had given them their breakthrough. Over the next decade, Tedder and One Republic became frequent hitmakers, scoring with such singles as Counting Stars. The hits from Shock Value affirmed Timbaland's newfound clout. Talk about shock. Tim's second act was now even more fruitful than his first, as he was sought out by a range of artists across the spectrum of pop, rock, and R&B. Everyone from Rihanna, to Bjork, to Duran Duran, and even former Soundgarden frontman Chris Cornell. Not all of these collaborations were hits. But their mere existence rounded out the image of Timbaland as the go-to producer for the accessibly unconventional. The culmination of this wave came when Tim was hired to produce the last top five hit by a certain queen of pop. Madonna's Four Minutes, a song essentially about its running time and its own existence, was designed by Timbaland to be fit for a queen, with blaring synthesizers sounding a royal fanfare, drill team percussion, and supporting vocals by both himself and Justin Timberlake. It was the lead single from Hard Candy, the chameleon-like Madonna's latest effort to keep pace with hip-hop-era pop. When it peaked at number three in the spring of 2008, Four Minutes became Madonna's highest-charting hit in eight years. For a follow-up, Madonna went with a track produced by the other premier Virginia Beach production team, The Neptunes. Only the track Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo produced for Madonna was not nearly as big a hit. 
Give It To Me, only reached number 57 on the Hot 100. This was a stark indication of how fortune had reversed between Timbaland and Pharrell in just a couple of years. The two never regarded their work as any kind of direct competition, but it was notable that often when one man's career was hot, the others hit a lull, as Tim's had in the early to mid-aughts while Pharrell's was ascendant. To be fair, the late aughts were not a total drought for Pharrell and Chad. In 2006, they scored one more chart topper as producers, manning the boards for the ludicrous smash Moneymaker. It hit number one on the Hot 100 in October of 06, sandwiched between, ironically enough, Sexy Back and My Love. But after Moneymaker, the Neptunes, as a production team, never scored another chart-topping hit. For the rest of the decade, Pharrell and Chad would periodically issue new music under their nerd alter ego. But behind the scenes, Pharrell began to strike out on his own, both as a writer-producer and an artist. So, while Timbaland was scoring another wave of hits in 2009 and 2010 with support from Justin Timberlake, and the then newly emerging rapper Drake. Pharrell Williams challenged himself with new solo projects. One of these took years to bear fruit on the charts. In 2010, at the invitation of film composer Hans Zimmer, Pharrell recorded the soundtrack of the hit animated film Despicable Me. Though he had produced songs for movie soundtracks in the past, this was Pharrell's first time composing most of a single film's soundtrack and score. Among the artists Williams brought in for Despicable Me was a vocalist he'd worked with half a decade earlier, blue-eyed soul singer Robin Thicke. The Neptunes had produced a minor hit single for Thicke back in 2005. And since then, Williams and Thicke had stayed in touch. For Despicable Me, Robin Thicke contributed vocals on a song called My Life. Life, life, 
2010 collaborations would spin off in different directions for Pharrell. Three years later, when Despicable Me spawned a sequel, Williams was brought back to oversee another soundtrack. This time, for Despicable Me 2, the film's directors issued a songwriting challenge to Pharrell. They needed a song for Gru, the film franchise's evil character, who was in a state of uncharacteristic happiness. After nearly a dozen tries, Pharrell pulled off the assignment, a joyous slice of retro soul that he called simply happy. The filmmakers were ecstatic over Pharrell's finished song, but even as Despicable Me 2 topped the box office in the summer of 2013, the studio and soundtrack label, Universal, chose not to promote Happy. Why? Well, because at that very moment, Pharrell Williams already had two songs on top of the charts, and one of them was led by the guy who'd helped Pharrell with the previous Despicable Me. Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines, Where Do We Begin? We talked about Blurred Lines, 2013's blockbuster song of the summer, in our Hits of the 2010s episode of Hit Parade. The song is now infamous for being the subject of a precedent-setting lawsuit in which the estate of the late Marvin Gaye successfully convinced a jury that the song, primarily written by Pharrell, stole the atmosphere, but not the melody, of Gay's 1977 number one hit, Got to Give It Up. Briefly, Blurred Lines was an intentional homage to the Gay song. That was the point. You can't copyright atmosphere. <clears throat> but I digress. Regardless of the legal headaches it later brought Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams, Blurred Lines was a positively massive song in 2013, number one for 12 straight weeks. It was so massive, in fact, it held off this other, more acclaimed song from reaching the top. It had to settle for number two. Get Lucky, French EDM duo Daft Punk's universally praised Grammy-winning disco jam with vocals by Pharrell and irresistible guitar by rock and R&B legend Niall Rogers. For five weeks in the summer of 2013, Blurred Lines and Get Lucky held down the number one and number two spots. Your gift keeps on giving. What is this I'm feeling? If you 
giving Pharrell Williams, a vocalist and co-songwriter on both hits, a hammerlock on the top of the Hot 100. Not since the peak of the Neptunes had Pharrell been so ubiquitous, and never as a credited artist, even if, on both tracks, he was in a supporting role. Which brings us back to Happy, a song on which Pharrell was the only credited artist. Even after Despicable Me Too was out of theaters, Pharrell knew the song was too good to let go. In the fall of 2013, he dropped 24 Hours of Happy, a day-long music video featuring scores of citizens and celebrities in Los Angeles singing along to his song. It was billed as the first ever 24-hour music video and the attention it drew began to propel Happy up the charts. By March of 2014, Happy had not only reached number one on the Hot 100, it had been nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song. When Pharrell performed it on the 2014 Oscars telecast, he became the first person in history to have the number one song in the country as a nominee at the Academy Awards. Happy stayed at number one for 10 weeks and ranked as Billboard's top song of 2014. Pharrell relaunched his solo career, dropping a new album called Girl, which quickly spawned a top 40 follow-up hit with Come Get It Bay, a duet with Miley Cyrus. Among the other guests on Pharrell's Girl album was Justin Timberlake. Who had, of course, always been more associated with producer Timbaland. But Justin had gotten Tim back on the charts, too. In 2013, seven years after Future Sex Love Sounds, Timberlake returned with the album The 2020 Experience, produced by Timberlake. And once again, they scored a raft of hits, including the number three Jay-Z collaboration Suit and Tie and the number two hit Mirrors, which benefited from Timberland's most anthemic production. In essence, after more than a decade of normalizing the unusual, Pharrell and Timbaland, two men now in their early 40s, 
responsible for the squarely mainstream hits Happy and Mirrors, had become kind of normcore themselves. Though Timbaland would never quite return to his heady days of the late aughts, his work with Timberlake and Jay-Z gave him one last wave of hits in the mid-2010s, including Holy Grail, the title track from Jay's album Magna Carta, Holy Grail. Pharrell? Arguably, his post-Neptune's hit streak just kept going. Maybe not quite at the torrid pace of 2002 through 2005, but Pharrell had a pretty great 2010s, producing hits for Beyonce, Ariana Grande, and Beck. As well as, I'll bet you didn't know this song was Pharrell's handiwork. Kendrick Lamar's now legendary 2015 Black Lives Matter anthem, All Right. But all these waves of late career hits for Timbaland and Pharrell leave open one question. What ever happened to Missy Elliott? To answer that, we need to take one last trip back to the aughts. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Moulin Rouge. Where's all my soul, sisters? Let me hear your flow, sisters. Hey, sister, go, sister, soul, sister, flow, sister. As early as 2001, Missy was fulfilling her personal goal of producing hits not just for other artists, but primarily for other women. On the number one remake of Lady Marmalade from the film Moulin Rouge, credited to Christina Aguilera, Lil' Kim, Maya, and Pink, the only vocalist not credited was its producer and mistress of ceremonies, Missy Elliott. By 2005, Elliott was shifting her focus from her own material toward these collaborations. For Ciara, Missy co-wrote the number two hit, One Two Step, and made a guest rap appearance. After Missy's 2005 album, The Cookbook, again, her first album mostly not produced by Timbaland, she stopped recording for herself altogether. 
but kept writing and producing for others, most especially other black women artists, giving them a leg up as others had done for her early in her career. For Keisha Cole, Elliot produced and guested on Let It Go, a number seven hit in 2007. Cause I got it like that, but it ain't even gotta be like that. <laughs> Yo man, he be calling me back. He say I'm fine and a matter of fact. <laughs> he asked how I do that. that For Jasmine Sullivan, Missy produced and rapped on Need You Bad. By the way, this was nearly a decade and a half before Sullivan would eventually win a Grammy for her album Hotels. Need You Bad topped the R&B chart in 2008. For Monica, a peer to Missy, who, like her, had come up in the 90s, Elliot produced the R&B chart-topping Everything to Me, Monica's first number one on that chart in seven years. And on the pop side of the dial, as we discussed in our remix episode of Hit Parade, in 2011, Missy agreed to do a remix of Katy Perry's Last Friday Night that took that song the last mile to number one on the Hot 100. It was around this time, in the summer of 2011, that Elliot revealed that her absence from recording her own new material was largely the result of Graves' disease, a thyroid disorder that caused her severe tremors while driving or even just holding a pen to write songs, which makes it all the more admirable that Elliot had shifted her attention to assisting other artists. Katy Perry was particularly appreciative. A good deal of her material, with its synth bounces and allusions to vintage hip-hop, owed more than a little to Missy Elliott. As thanks for Elliot's support, when Katy Perry was invited to perform on the Super Bowl halftime show in 2015, she ceded nearly one-third of her time on stage to Missy Elliott, who came out and performed her hits Get Your Freak On, Work It, and Lose Control. halftime performance, watched by 118 million viewers, reacquainted the public with Missy Elliott's catalog and sent her digital sales skyrocketing. Taking advantage of this, later that year, Elliott released a new single, WTF, parentheses, Where They From 
produced by none other than Pharrell Williams. It reached number 22 on the Hot 100, Elliott's first top 40 hit as a lead artist in over a decade. Despite the encouragement of Pharrell, since WTF, Missy has still not issued a full-length album. The cookbook from 2005 remains her last, and her six studio LPs have a perfect platinum streak. She has continued to make appearances on others' tracks, such as her guest role on a Janet Jackson single in 2016. And in 2018, on Ellen DeGeneres' talk show, Elliot surprised a superfan named Mary Halsey, who had earned viral fame with her flawless karaoke performance of Missy's classic, Work It. Will Missy Elliott ever record a full-length album again? Since her successful treatment for Graves' disease, she seems to enjoy being an elder stateswoman of hip-hop. In 2019, MTV finally acknowledged her singular influence by presenting her with their Video Vanguard Award, their highest commemorative honor. In the video package announcing Missy's award, she, Pharrell Williams, and Timbaland all reminisced about their history together, both as musical visionaries and as natives of Virginia Beach. If I can't see the visual of what the video is going to be, then that's a record that I just got to throw away. I have to see a visual for that record for me to feel like this is going to be a, a, a hit. I was like, wow, look what is coming out of Virginia Beach. She put our accent on the airwaves. That feels like something. we never seen ourselves before or heard ourselves before. Coming from B.A., my sound didn't fit into what New York was doing, what West Coast was doing. But Missy, she like, nah, Tim, sometimes being wrong is right. Notably, that same night at the VMAs, the singer, rapper, and iconoclast Lizzo was also up for several awards after a breakthrough year. And she, too, explained Missy's influence on her work. For me, being young and weird and chubby and a black girl and wanting to do music, I was like, wow, anything is possible. That night, Lizzo performed her rising single, Truth Hurts, which had the same blend of bravado and sexual agency Missy Elliott had been instilling into her music for decades. The week after the 2019 VMAs, Truth Hurts rose to number one on the Hot 100. Well, 
in essence, you could say the whole night was one long tribute to Missy, who received her Video Vanguard Prize and took the stage to perform a medley of her material. These hits, once utterly alien sounding, many produced by Timbaland and brought back to life in the 2010s with the help of Pharrell Williams, these had been fully absorbed into the culture and they now sounded like classics. For one night, time went backward as Missy put her thang down, flipped it, and reversed it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Melanthic. That's me. My producer is Kevin Bendis. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer and Derek John, the supervising narrative producer of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the Hit Parade back your way. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanthony.